We are in Acts chapter 28, and uh, today we are closing out our series of sermons on the book of Acts. According to my count, this is sermon number 32, Uh, so you have patiently endured, and I hope you've gotten something out of it, Um, and I appreciate you, Crosspoint, for being a church that loves the Bible and allows uh, the pastor to go through Scripture, and uh, it's been a a very... uh, interesting, exciting journey uh, through uh, this great book. And what I want to do today is, you know, when I spend a lot of time on something in my life, you know, what I want to do is kind of stop and say, what should I have gotten out of that experience? Like, if I could just sum up uh, some themes, some ideas that, that really got drawn home to me on a regular basis. And so that's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to use Acts 28 and we're going to say, hey, let's talk about what we've learned in this series on the spreading flame and on the book of Acts. We won't cover everything that we, that we talked about over these last 32 weeks, but, uh, but certainly we can capture some of those ideas. And so to begin to get that on the table, uh, let us uh, just kind of review kind of the purpose of the book of Acts and really look at kind of the broad picture before we look at chapter uh, 28. And if you have a Bible, just go with me to Luke chapter 1. Go all the way to Luke chapter 1. And Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. And what you might remember when we first started this series is that the book of Acts is just basically the second scroll to the gospel of Luke. Luke Acts is the same book. It's just two different scrolls. And so really, the story of Acts begins in Luke chapter 1. And let me read to you verses 5 through 7 of Luke chapter 1 and take a look at at these verses. Luke writes, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And so begins Luke describing the beginning of the gospel with, these, with this elderly couple who ends up being the parents of John the Baptist. And basically, Luke is saying, look at where the Christian movement began. It began in a hillside town in Judea. It began with an elderly couple who could not have any babies. And the gospel, as far as the story of, this, of Jesus and his message, begins with the miraculous uh, pregnancy of Zechariah and Elizabeth. It, it begins this probing question. How did Christianity begin with such a Jewish flavor and with this elderly couple who couldn't have babies to ultimately reaching Rome, ultimately reaching the ends of the earth? Of course, Luke would go on to describe the birth of our Lord and Savior in a cave uh, in Bethlehem, an obscure town for sure. But now go to Acts chapter 1. Go to Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. There Luke continues, likely with the second scroll... The Gospel of Luke. And he says here in verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, 
I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You could circle that word began. That's a, that's a critical word. Because basically in the Gospel of Luke, he's tracked it from Zechariah and Elizabeth to the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. But when he says all that Jesus began to do, he said, if you think we're done talking about the ministry of Jesus on earth... Not even close. We're just getting started to tell the story of Jesus' and his work in people's life on earth. And that, that ministry and that story of Jesus continues in the church, in the body of Jesus Christ. The point for you and I is that the church is the bride of Christ. Amen? We are the body of Jesus Christ, and we continue the story of Jesus in our ministry and in the message that we hold of forgiveness, of God's love, of God's transformation that happens through and in the name of Jesus Christ. So you begin to capture this idea of spreading flame through the body of Christ. Now, go from Acts 1.1 to Acts 1.8, and you will remember, church, when we first started this series, we outlined the book of Acts according to Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus says there, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Ultimately, Acts chapters 1 through 8 covers the gospel witness in Jerusalem. Acts chapters uh, 8 and 9, pardon me, covers the gospel witness in Judea and Samaria. And then Acts chapters 10 through 28 co- covers the gospel reaching to the end of the earth. And so it begins to spread from that hillside town in Judea, then ultimately to Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And taking that, now you can go to Acts chapter 28, and let's read the last couple of verses of the chapter and of the book. This is how he closed out the Luke-Acts narrative. Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. Paul is under house arrest, as we'll talk about here in a little bit. And it says that Paul lived there two whole years, that is, in Rome, at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God... And teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, it's an interesting close to that whole narrative. And the reason why it's interesting is because it's like, what happened to Paul? Like, the way he ends the story is he's just there. He's in this house arrest. People are coming. He's preaching the gospel. We have no idea how this story really ends. Almost all scholars and all people who have observed the book of Acts admit that it's kind of a a rough ending. There's no like the end or la, you know, like Disney World, it's all wrapped up and tied up. Paul is in prison and he's preaching the gospel there. And the point is this, why would it end that way? The The reason why it ends that way is because the story of the spread of the gospel will not end until Jesus comes back. And you and I are the end. We are the next chapter. 
We are the ones who take and receive this gospel of Jesus. And then ultimately we are responsible not to hoard it or to sit on it or to cover it up or to, or to cover it up with a blanket or to cover it up and make it our own personalized spirituality. Ultimately, it's our job to continue on the story of the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke is the Jesus book, Acts is the church book, but they all combine together and they teach the church that it's our job to spread the gospel, to live for the gospel, to be radically committed, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And ultimately, it's not about Paul, is it? Ultimately, it's not about Philip or James or any of the other characters we're studied. Ultimately, it's about the name of Jesus. And we ask ourselves, well, How can I be a part of spreading the gospel? And uh, what is ultimately uh, uh, God calling me to do? And, And what is it that I need to take away both as a church together but also as followers of Jesus? What are the themes that I need to take away as I seek to be a person, a follower, an ambassador of Jesus Christ? To answer those questions and outline basically five things I want you to take away from this series let me highlight those five things from Acts chapter 28. So that was my introduction. Here's my sermon. Let's go to the top of Acts 28, and let's start in verse 1. And let me, let me read to you the first 10 verses. It says here, uh, After we were brought safely through, we remember the shipwreck and the storm, and Paul's on his way to Rome, the journey to Rome. As we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. This island is about the size of a small apartment in Chicago. I mean, this thing is like a, I mean, it's just barely a one-bedroom home, this island. It's so small. It's amazing, providentially, sovereignly, that God shipwrecked Paul on this island. Verse 2. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. I mean, it's like, can Paul catch a break, right? I mean, it's like, it's like Jesus, do something to let this guy have a good day, right? I mean, he's been through shipwreck. He's been beaten on all these missionary journeys. He's been drug out of town. He's been attacked. He's been shipwrecked. And you would think he could just go get some sticks and start a little fire without anything bad happening. And yet here it comes, a viper attaches itself to its arm and won't let go. He's literally walking around with a snake hanging from his arm like thank you Jesus verse 4 when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand they said to one another no doubt this man is a murderer though he has escaped from the sea justice which was a local god local false god named justice has not allowed him to live he however shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm And they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. 
They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sell, they put on board whatever we needed. Now, when we begin to look at this, here's the first thing. As you begin to live for Christ, here's what you should expect. Number one, you should expect spiritual attack. Haven't we seen that over and over and over again in the book of Acts? The constant onslaught of spiritual attack in our life. And what we have to realize about Satan and about spiritual attack is that Satan can use all kinds of different things to bring about attack. Remember, he can even use, sometimes he can use sickness, health issues. Remember Job, when when Satan went before God and was walking in heaven before God and said, what about your servant Job? And, And God sovereignly allowed Satan to attack Job and to take away Job's health. We can be attacked by Satan through our health. We can be attacked by Satan through storms. We can be attacked by Satan by by cars breaking down. Don't say amen, right? You can be attacked by people can attack. Satan can use people to attack you. And one of the things that we always say and that we always kind of think about, and I think it's pretty accurate, is that if God is about to do something great in you and through you, you can pretty much count on going through some form of adversity and some form of attack. But I would even kind of adjust that that theology a little bit. And I would say that the New Testament teaches that any time God is leading you into a new season, everybody say new season. Every time God's about to do something new, you're going to be attacked. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, for example, and you track Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke, every time Jesus was about to step through the threshold into a new area of ministry, he would be attacked. Remember, he gets baptized, and he's about to start his earthly ministry. And what's the first thing that happens to him as he's about to start his earthly ministry? Forty days and forty nights he's led into the wilderness and he's attacked by Satan. At one point in time, Jesus is doing ministry to the, primarily the Jewish people. And as he's about to cross the Sea of Galilee and go into Gentile territory for the first time where there's pig farmers and Gentiles and non-Jewish people and he's going to take the message of the kingdom of God, the Gentiles, what's the first thing that happens when he steps out of that boat and puts his foot on that ground that leads to Gentiles? A demon-possessed man attacks him. Remember, and Jesus said, what is your name? And the demon gave him a Gentile Roman military name. My name is Legion, for we are many. The spiritual warfare attacking Jesus at every moment of his life, from Gethsemane right before the cross, when he sweated great drops of blood, not my will, but your will be done. That was spiritual attack. And as that theme continues through the book of Acts, you can see that every time the gospel was about to claim new territory, claim new people for God's love, claim new areas for God's dominion and rule and reign in people's hearts, every time Satan would attack. Paul said, I'm going to plant churches in in urban cities in the Roman Empire. And every time he entered a city, he was attacked. And here's the thing. As you say, I want to live for Christ, you've got to realize you're going to be attacked. And every time you're about to take a new step that God has for you, you're going to, I don't know what that attack looks like, but it's real. 
And, you know, we can believe in theories and theology about demons and Satan, but let me tell you something. It is as real as that snake that's, that's hanging from Paul's arm. It's that real. And some of you, God is about to, God's about to open doors in your heart, in your life. You're about to take a new step in spiritual maturity. And what's going to happen is something's going to come to discourage you. Something's going to come to distract you. Don't let it happen. Remember what Paul said. In fact, while Paul was in that Roman prison, actually under house arrest, he got to rent an apartment and he was guarded by an imperial guard, but he got to walk around his apartment and write books. And we know of many books he wrote during that time that are in the New Testament. We call them prison epistles. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the book of Philemon he wrote during his time in Rome in uh, Acts 28. And we remember one of those prison epistles, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. And listen to how he talks to regular folk, people who have everyday jobs, husbands and wives and children and regular followers of Jesus in this urban center of Ephesus. And listen to how Paul uh, wants them to expect that they're going to be attacked as they're living for Jesus Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. This is remarkable passages. Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil and heavenly places. Paul knows from experience, this is what's going to happen. And our issues are not people. Our issues are, are, are principalities and demons trying to divide us from God's plan, trying to divide us from what God is trying to do. Expect this. And so you're like, well, what can I do? What are some of the things I can do? I just highlighted. I don't have a slide for it. But he goes on to talk about the armor of God. And we did a big series on spiritual warfare called Up in Arms. You can go online and listen to that whole series. But in verse 15, he says, As shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. One of the things Paul says to do when you're going through spiritual attack is here's what you got to do. You got to put on your shoes. You got to put on your, your, your I want to say big boy shoes, but he actually says gospel shoes and be ready. And what you got to do is you got to get on your toes and you got to go and serve. What did Paul do when he was being attacked on that island? You know what he did? He said, I'm not going to worry about the attack. I'm going to keep serving. I'm going to bring healing. I'm going to pray for people. I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. The way I'm going to press in is not worry about the attack. I'm going to put on my gospel shoes and keep doing gospel ministry no matter what happens. And that is really hard to do, right? But that's what we have to keep doing. The more you're attacked, the more you should serve. One thing that's been coming to me, both in conversations I've had with other people and the Holy Spirit is that, you know, listen, I feel like the Holy Spirit saying, Josh, just serve. Don't make it about you. Make it about Jesus. You know, Paul said, Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ, to die as gain. You know what that means? It means that I'm only to care about the glory of Christ. And if I'm only caring about the glory of Christ, then I can't care about my problems, can I? There's not enough room. I live for Christ. I sir, I put on my gospel shoes. I'm ready to go. I'm ready. I'm ready to bring it through the attack. 
And maybe some of you, you're being attacked right now. Maybe it's health or whatever. Listen, don't be scared. Don't be anxious. Stand up. The righteous man is unafraid of good news because God is with you. And even though he allows the attack, he will not allow you to be harmed. That snake bit Paul on the arm, but it didn't kill him, did it? Because God was in control. And God will get you through as you surrender to him, as you, as you surrender to him, as you press into him in the difficult times. He will get you through as difficult as it might be. So expect spiritual attack. Now, let me pick this up in verse 11. Go back to Acts 28 in verse 11. Luke continues the story. He says, after three months, we set sail in a ship. That had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead, putting in at Syracuse. We stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Requiem. And after one day south, wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petula, blah, 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 Verse 14. That seminary teaches you how to talk really fancy. Teaches you tongues. All right, verse 14. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. I mean, Christians are coming from the bars. They're coming from churches. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. The key phrase here is that when he saw them, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. I I wrote down, here's the second point, that the second thing that we need to take with us from the gospel of, of Luke and Acts is we need to take from it community encouragement. Community encouragement is a vital theme, isn't it, in the, in the book of Acts. We, we saw going all the way back to chapters 2 and 3 and 4 how the community came together and called each other friends and prayed together and they, they met from house to house. And the word that the Holy Spirit gave to me as I was preparing this sermon that I want to share with you is that when you're living for Christ alone, that doesn't mean that Christ will leave you alone. Christ always gives people to you to encourage you. And Paul needed this. Even the great apostle Paul, even the great missionary, even the one who was, who was this mighty man of God who's done these great things, you know he's so tired. He's been bitten by snakes, storm-wrecked, beat up. He's got scars from all those black eyes he's taken from people. I mean, he is so beat up. But when he sees all these Christians running to him, you're like, how did they know who he was? Well, because he had written the book of Romans, and they had studied that, that book that he had written to the church, and they were very familiar with his, with his theology and the gospel, and they were, they were excited to see him, and so they come running out, and they meet him outside of Rome, and they walk in with him, and he's encouraged by it. Listen, the perseverance, here's our mantra. Our mantra at Crosspoint is, the perseverance of faith is a community project, And I got that line from John Piper, and I say it as many times as I can. You know what? If you have faith in Christ and it's real, it will persevere. But God helps our faith to persevere through the means of church community and encouragement. And you know what we need? If the Apostle Paul needs a band of brothers and sisters to help him have courage, then you and I need the same thing too. 
And in America, we're all looking for a spirituality that we can kind of do on our own. You know, we're kind of looking for God to save me, God to do it for me, God to make it about me. And I want you to know, Jesus doesn't save us to be the individuals of God. Jesus saves us to be the people of God. And that's what we got to be. We got to encourage one another. We got to meet one another. We got to be the ones that serves one another. That's why we do, we do things like life groups. That's why, that's why we do things that, that hopefully give you opportunities to meet other people. You know, I always say the goal of Cross Point Church is not that you know everybody in the church, but that you know somebody in the church. The goal is not that you serve everybody's need, but you serve somebody's need. The goal is not that you have to know everybody, but that you are known yourself by somebody else. That's a very challenging thing for me personally because I'll tell you something about my own life. I'm a very private person. I don't like telling people my stuff. I don't like people knowing my mail. I don't like people knowing what's going on in my life. I'm, I'm, very, I'm the one that leans away from prayer requests. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'll pray about it myself. I don't need nobody to pray for me. You know what I'm saying? And some people might think that's prideful. It might be. Now, Sherry, on the other, other hand, she wants to tell everybody everything that's going on in our life, right? And so Sherry will start telling people, I'll be elbowing, like, stop talking about our stuff. You know what I mean? She's like, we need to tell somebody. You know what I'm saying? And there's just, you know what I mean? It's like, pray for us. Like, you know what I'm saying? I bet you you guys, some of you married couples are the same way. One of you likes to tell everybody your business. The other one's like, shut up. Right? But here's the thing. Here's what the Bible teaches us about community. It's not about knowing people, because that's really easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to know people. It's easy to know people. It's very difficult to allow yourself to be known. And what you have to do, let me ask you a question. Do you have people that you can call on the phone that got your back spiritually? Do you have somebody who's going to speak God into your life? Do you have somebody that's going to hold you accountable? Do you have somebody who's going to be like, man, I, I feel you. I'm glad you called, but here's the truth you need to hear. Do you have somebody who's going to encourage you in Christ and say, man, I've got your back prayer. I'm going to pray for you every day. And you know that if they say they're praying for you, they're really praying for you. And are you the type of person that somebody can call? Are you the type of person that somebody can lean on? Are you the type of person that somebody can trust? Are you the person that's going to be like, I will be here for you. I am that person. And you support each other. Listen, that's how we take courage. That's how we walk by faith and not by sight. That's how we don't give in to fear. That's how we don't give in to anxiety. But we continue to stand strong in the promises of God because we are together walking through it together. That's why the book of Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering together. Do not forsake encouraging one another every single day. Man, do not let church be superficial. Trick all this superficial church stuff, this, this religious kind of like, let's just go through the motions. You know what? We're all a mess. That's why we're here together. We are a mess. And, and we're not going to come around and pretend like we're not a mess. We're not going to walk around here like we're all okay. We have a sinful nature. That sinful nature is real. It's in you. It's in me. And God has said, you need to believe in Christ to be cleansed and forgiven. And you need each other to grow and be sanctified and made holy through a slow process of hearing the word, of gathering together, of praying together. Cross Point Church, we don't want to be shallow on those issues. We want to lean in. 
community encouragement. Paul needed it. He needed it to continue his ministry because it's only just getting started in the hardship he's about to face. Hmm. Hey, listen, you need community encouragement. You need to expect spiritual attack. Here's the third thing. We pick it up uh, here in verse 17. Look at Acts 28, verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the, God, of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. I love their response. Watch this. And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you. None of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now, I love this. Because Paul's, like, Paul's been a controversial figure. Some people like him, some people don't. The Jewish people are really frustrated with him because he's a Jewish guy who's taken a message to the Gentile people. And he's been persecuted by these people. So his first response to these Jewish leaders in Rome is he starts to defend himself. And he's like, now listen, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong against my people, against our nation. And I haven't done anything wrong against Rome. I'm bound, I've been chained, and I've been brought here, but I've done nothing wrong. So he's interested to defend himself, and I love their response, and I think it becomes a critical moment in Paul's life. They say, look, dude, it doesn't say that in the Greek, it doesn't say dude, but the Joshua Guttery translation is, look, dude, like, we don't care about what people think about you. We don't care about the controversy surrounding you. What we do care about is this message of Jesus, and it's disturbing us, so could you outline that? And the third thing is, is that we got to remember that the message is the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing. I love that phrase. Keep the main thing, the main thing. And what is the main thing? The main thing is the message of the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what gives you hope. That's what gives me hope. Not the messenger. Not the messenger, but the message is what gives us hope. And we have to stay focused on that. Again, I, and I love the prison epistles. Again, these are things he wrote while he was under house arrest in Rome. But listen to what Paul says to the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. It's so good. This is so good. But Philippians 1.15, it says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? What am I going to do with these people? 
only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You see what he's saying? Some preachers do preach Christ for selfish ambition, don't they? Some people do preach Christ out of rivalry. Some, pe- some preachers and messengers have mixed motives. Some are hirelings that are hired by the church and they do it for a paycheck. They do it for reasons that if we saw into their heart, we would be greatly disturbed for their motives. And Paul knows that some of them are preaching Jesus just to kind of stick it to him while he's in under house arrest, while he's being attacked. And so they're trying to take his influence and take his power. And you know what Paul says in Philippians 1? It doesn't matter what their motive is. It doesn't matter what they're doing. The most important thing is this. They preach Jesus. They preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Acts tells us time and time again, it's not about the messenger, is it? It's not about Peter. It's not about James or Philip. It's not about Paul. It's not about Barnabas. All these great characters we studied. What Acts keeps coming back to is it's all about Jesus. And you know what the most important thing in your life is, Crosspoint? Not what you think of your messengers or your pastors or your elders. The most important thing in your life is what do you think about Jesus? And are you really living under his authority and his word? Is he really the ruler and reigner over your heart? Or are you ruled and reigned by other things? And when I was growing up, man, I had a great pastor. Man, I just, I loved my pastor. He was so great. And man, he he just brought, he brought the gospel. He brought the Bible in a Methodist robe. Can I get an amen? He'd fly around in a Methodist robe and preach for 45, 55 minutes. And I mean, we took it. We were just like, yeah, great, bam, bam, bam. And he just brought that gospel. And as I grew up under his teaching, right, as you can tell, I'm nothing like him. I have no robe. But as I grew up in that church, I became best friends with his son. And I used to get to go over to his house all the time. And what I began to see is that as great as he was, and he was always qualified for ministry, he was a real guy. He wasn't a holy man. He didn't float around. He had feet of clay. He was not perfect, you see. I learned to understand the the difference and not to put a man on a pedestal or to expect too much, but to expect that he will bring Jesus to my life. I had another pastor. You guys might be more familiar with this. His name is James McDonald. And Sherry and I were members. He was our pastor. We sat under his teaching as members of Harvest Bible Chapel and Rolling Meadows, man. Big church. At that time, it was a small church of 3,000, right? Remember Walk in the Word? Walk, walk in the Word. It is the way. I love James McDonald. I'm a fan, right? But as we got to sit under that ministry and watch him week in and week out, we learned he wasn't a perfect pastor either. But he preached the Bible and Jesus, and he was a qualified elder of the church. Here's the thing. Never, ever put somebody up on a pedestal. Only Jesus. Let Jesus be your ruler, your king, and the one you lean into. And Acts, that is a theme of Acts. These churches, even these churches come and go, but Jesus, you know, you can't find it. All the churches that Paul planted are no longer there in Europe. Did you know that? Not one of those churches is still around, but the word of Jesus is still around, right? 
Even the churches themselves aren't Jesus. Your church isn't Jesus. Your pastor isn't Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. And you've got to keep the message as the main thing. Expect spiritual attack. You need community encouragement. Remember the message is the main thing. Two more things here. Let's go back to Acts 28. Acts chapter 28. Knowing that it's about the message, we get the gospel here in verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him to his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he, that is Paul, expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said But others disbelieve. Skip down to verses 30 and 31 again. It says that for two whole years at his own expense, he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The one thing that I wrote down and and that I noticed is that he's expounding to them. He's sharing the gospel with them. He's, He's telling people. But what I notice is strategy, and I I put down point number four, keep developing gospel strategies. You know, Paul was a strategic guy. I mean, we keep seeing his strategic thinking. He's a creative thinker. And the way you can see his his creative strategy is that as he's in jail, people keep showing up, or not jail, house arrest. As he's under house arrest and he's got the, you know, ankle bracelet that'll go off if he leaves the door, you know what I mean? All these people keep coming. There was no ankle braces back then. Uh, all these people keep coming to him, and they're just flowing day and night. People just keep coming to hear the gospel. And we go, well, how did they know where he was, and how, how, did, this, how did this go down? And I was really confused by that, that it was day and night and all the time and everything. And here's what I learned. If you read the end of Colossians, the book of Colossians, another prison epistle, what you learn is that Paul had associates. He had a team of people. In fact, to memorialize these really forgotten heroes in the spread of the gospel and in Paul's ministry, uh, he lists in Colossians these names. Let me give them to you. Tysicus, Epaphroditus, Aristocrus, Lucas, Demas, Marcus, who some scholars believe is the John Mark that many years ago Paul had forbidden because he wasn't ready. And now John Mark might actually be one of the guys. And they're working with him in Rome. And you know what they're doing? Paul is sending them out. They're hitting the streets. They're, they're inviting people. They're saying, listen, the Apostle Paul has this message of the coming Messiah. And you Jewish people, you need to come and hear about this message. And Paul is constantly, strategically, practically uh, trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to send out my team. They've got a plan, and this plan is going to bring people to hear the gospel. Come and hear. Come and see the good news of God and Jesus Christ. You know what we have to think in our own life personally and as a church is, what's some strategic ways? What's my strategy? Do you have a plan to spread the gospel in your own life? And, and as a church, what, what are some things that we need to do so that more people can hear the gospel of Jesus? Being spirit-filled does not negate the, ne- the 
necessary quality of being strategic. In fact, the Holy Spirit will always lead us to being strategic in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's your plan? What's, what's your goal? Is that even a goal in your life? Because the message of the gospel is ultimately, once we have it, it's not about us. It's about sharing with other people. You know, in my own life, I'm always trying to find ways, and I'm imperfect for sure, but I'm trying to find creative ways to share the gospel outside of the church, outside of being a pastor. Here in a few weeks, I won't be up here. I'll be gone from the pulpit, and I'll be in a prison, and I'll be preaching in a prison, I do that a few times a year because that's my way as a pastor to get out and share the gospel in dark places, in necessary places that need the gospel. What's your plan? What are the things you're doing? And as a church, what is our next step? What's going to be the necessary ingredient for us to strategically share the gospel of Jesus Christ? So keep developing gospel strategies. Here's the final lesson. Expect gospel response. We see the response, and again, in Acts, we see that some people accept the gospel, other people reject the gospel, but we begin to see it in verse 24. It says here, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. That's how it is. The gospel goes out there, and it kind of creates a division line with people. Some people are going to accept it, and some people are going to reject it. Verse 25, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. This theme of moving from the Jewish people to Gentile peoples happens over and over again. And not each time it's not definite, but it's like every time Paul reaches a place, the Jewish people would, would uh, reject it. And then he would have to take it to Gentile, unchurched people because they end up accepting it. But we see this, this gospel response. And you know, at the end of the day, the question that's left for you and I in our hearts, and this is something we got to ask over and over again. Do I really believe? Have I really accepted? Do I really understand? Do I really perceive what this is all about? Why was it and why is it that people reject the gospel of Jesus? Why is it so offensive? First Peter says that Jesus is a rock of offense, that he is a stumbling block. And we think, well, Jesus would never be a stumbling block. Oh, no, no, no. Jesus is a stumbling block. Why? Why is he a stumbling block in my life? Why is he a stumbling block in your life? And the reason why is because Jesus gives us a message not of good advice, but he gives us a message of good news. And what is the good news? That God reigns. That there's no area of our life that is left unclaimed by the creator God. 
And God came in the person of Jesus, and he died, and he rose again on the third day, not just to give us some kind of private spiritual salvation, but to claim every area of our life, physical, social, economic, spiritual, every area of our life, God says, I reign over you in Christ. Your sexual life belongs to me. Your money life belongs to me. Your social life belongs to me. Your spiritual life belongs to me. And what we humans do is we take God and we try to over-spiritualize him and we try to keep him trapped in a, in a spiritual corner while we live out our life. And what Jesus says is, dude, I have purchased you with my blood. You belong to me. Everybody belongs to me. And that's why when we go, well, I don't want God talking to me and my money. He can baptize my whole body, but not my wallet. I don't want you talking to me about my relationships. The Jewish people had come to depend upon the law of God, come to depend upon outward works to make them right with God. And Jesus said to them, you can't be right by works. You have to receive this good news. But to everybody who understands this news of God's reign in their life, they are set free. They are liberated in their heart and mind. They've received something that brings joy and peace and surrender and giving your whole life to God. I read about a great story in a book, a book called the the a Theology as Big as the City. It's by a guy by the name of Ray Bach, B-A-K-K-E. I think, it's, I think you say it Bach. I think that's the way you say it. It could be, it could be Bake. Either way, he's got a great story. And the great story is he tells about a, a pastor who during World War II in Germany was captured. And he was put in a concentration camp. And the Germans allowed him to be a chaplain over the prisoners of war that he was with. And there was an American concentration camp and a British concentration camp, and they wouldn't let those two groups come together. But the chaplain of the British and the chaplain of the Americans were allowed to come together, and they were allowed to talk to each other and share news with each other every day. And so these chaplains would come and share what's going on in the camps. And one of the camps had, had, had smuggled a radio and was able to get news of, of the happenings in the war without the guards knowing. And so one day they figured out by, via radio that Germany had surrendered and that the war was won. However, the guards didn't know the war was won because all the communication in Germany was, was messed up. So the chaplain who had the news, see the news, everybody say news. They had the news. He brought over the news to the other chaplain and he said through the fence without the guard hearing, Germany surrendered. The war is won. And the chaplain took that news, and he went to the side of the camp that didn't know that news. And the other chaplain waited to hear. And as soon, he knew when they heard because he could hear all the other prisoners of war clapping and going, all right, man, all right. And they were, you could hear them celebrating. Of course, the guards had no idea what was going on. And for four days and four nights, things went on as usual. Same bad food, same cramped quarters, same horrible living conditions. But the guards noticed that all the prisoners were different. They were walking around. They didn't mind the bad food. They didn't mind the cramped quarters. They didn't mind the harsh circumstances because they knew the news. And the news was that the war was won. And they woke up four days later. And when they woke up, the guards were gone and the gates were open and they were set free. But the chaplain said, it wasn't that day that we were set free. It was the day that we heard the news that we were set free when we were really set free. And that's what Paul was telling these people. 
Paul was saying you need to respond with joy because the war has been won. And sometimes your life's going to be cramped quarters. Sometimes a snake's going to be off your arm. Sometimes your ship is going to wreck. Sometimes your life is going to get all messed up. Sometimes people are going to attack you, but it doesn't matter because the war has been won. And my food might not be good. And my life might not be good. But Jesus is good because he's won the war. And one day I'll wake up. And those gates will be open. And I'll walk through those gates. And I'll live with King Jesus forever. And there will not be any more tears or pain. No sickness. No division. Only unity of heart, mind, soul, and body. Living in the presence of God. What's your response? Do you believe? Are you playing a game? Are you pretending Are you believing? I've told you the news. Jesus is one. Let us believe. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have given us the news, the good news. We're behind the fences of a fallen world. We're confined in bodies that are slowly decaying. Our life is passing away. Life is a vapor. But the good news is that you have won the victory. And we choose today to respond not with fear but with faith. We choose today to respond with passion, with the good news, news that's worthy to sing about, news that's worthy to share, news that's worthy to be brought into our regular daily existence, a relationship with you. Help us by grace and in your spirit to walk in that news and to sit down at the table with each other. And to break bread and look at one another with love. We worship you today. We pray that anyone here, God, that's not a Christian would cross the line of faith. If you're not a Christian, the way to become a Christian is just to personally respond to Jesus. He's the source, the person of good news. He says, all who come to me, I will in no way cast out. Just say to him, I am broken. I have sinned, but come into my life. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe you defeated death and begin to follow him with your life. He will be a stronghold in your life. He will be a refuge. He is safe. Come to him now. For the rest of us, let us worship him. Let's stand right now and sing to our Jesus. Amen.